Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark, and we are back this week. This is episode 12. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. We needed to take uh, last week as sort of a sabbatical to take care of some other projects and family matters, but we felt like we had earned it. We've been working this podcast so hard, burning the midnight oils for episodes 1 through 11. I don't know how we did it. I don't either. It's a... Our producers are so hard on us. <laughs> Joe, the slave driver. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I'm watching like a filmmaking, you know, documentary about like a superhero movie and how it exhausts the directors and they're miserable after making their movie and they want to quit. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know, but you're also rich and uh, that's true, everybody yeah. loves you. <laughs> and every time I've been in, involved in a movie project, I've done three now with CMI. In the middle of it, I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and then I'm, at the end, I'm so happy that we actually pushed through it and finished it. Yeah. And they've been good films. And they're so useful. The thing is, is that the uh, the pain is temporary. And the reward is, I don't know, like it lasts a little while longer. It lasts a long time. We're still <laughs> getting, I'm still getting comments from the stuff we did 10 years ago. I don't yeah. mind that. I have a lot of books and videos on the shelf. I don't get a lot of feedback about. <clears throat> so um, what did you want to talk about this week? Um, oh, I had something important. Yes. Do you, okay, we haven't really talked much about this on Equinox. So I thought that it would be able to um, f- give our listeners a fresh perspective, hearing from you what you think about the coronavirus. I don't want this whole episode to be about the coronavirus. You know, my uh, biblical genetics Facebook group, I said, no more coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> I, I put a moratorium. No one's allowed to talk about it now. Well, the moratorium is now open. I, or, well, or as far as our state goes, okay. But, <laughs> um, it's very, very, very difficult to say. Mm-hmm. I don't have any good information. I don't have any information that I trust. Mm. All the predictions from three months ago were wrong. Mm. All the predictions of today, I don't know. The death rate obviously is less than we thought. Mm. Well, thank God. Yeah, pray, praise the Lord. But that was, um, you know, based on early information. But the death rate is still pretty high. This is still bad. It's still a higher death rate than the flu, and the flu is bad enough. Mm. And it's still very contagious. And still a lot of people get it, and they're like, I got this. Where did I get this from? And all of a sudden, they're in the hospital. Yeah. So it's still a major problem. So can you give a comment to the video that you produced a week ago? You did address the virus one last time before you put a lockdown on that, right? Oh, my. I had no idea what was about to happen. Now, no doubt most listeners have heard of an upcoming documentary called Plandemic. Their trailer went viral. I mean, millions of views. And share and share and share. And so the day before I I released a video on this, about 10 people asked me. We're talking, you know, work email, personal email, a text on my phone, uh, biblical genetics uh, website, uh, biblical genetics Facebook group, regular Facebook. All these people are asking me, I'm like, what is this? So I went and I watched this video. I'm like, this is awful. These people aren't telling the truth. And so it was late in the day. I had just worked a full day and I actually worked late and I went for a jog and I just eaten dinner and I'm typing up a response and, you know, just typing up a response to this, this video pandemic part one and i realized why am i writing this i should do a video response i have a youtube channel i have a youtube channel and so i sat on my front porch as it was getting dark 
And I talked for 23 minutes and I only had to make one or two edits, which is kind of amazing. And I went inside and I edited it and I exported it and I loaded it up to YouTube. And it was 1230 when that thing finally got loaded. And I sat there for half an hour and I I had 130 views pretty quickly. I was amazed. And it's 730 in the morning. So I went to bed about 130, sitting down for my work day now, 730 in the morning. And I had 3000 views. 3,000, oh wow, yeah, Just okay. Yeah. Overnight, in the six hours that I got sleep, so I'm bleary-eyed saying, I needed more sleep last night. Well, it's not even been 12 hours since it was released. No, it's six hours. By the end of the day, you know, six o'clock that evening, I had 43,000 views, and I had sucked up 4.9 thousand hours of people's <laughs> eyeballs, and I couldn't believe it. I yeah, you got a taste of that... Uh writing the algorithm on YouTube high. I did. I just, you know, they were going viral and I just piggybacked along with it. I'm perfectly happy with that, except I stirred up the trolls and I got a lot of insults and I answered a lot of excoriating comments where I tried to answer politely, but I was being called all sorts of things. I don't think you need to respond to the trolls. Uh, I know that, but it, they're, they're just flesh eating monsters without souls. They're not even human. Okay, but most of the people responding are people that I would like to be friends with if they weren't trapped in the system of thinking. Sure. And so my heart's going out, especially to my Christian brothers and sisters who are are trapped. Because you watch something like that video presentation, and it looks so good Hmm. until you stop and you think through it. And you realize, wait a minute, that sentence doesn't follow from that next sentence. Those ideas don't go together, and they just spun them together like they're, they're one whole. And wait a second, I can fact check that statement right there. When I fact check that statement, that person's not telling the truth. Hmm. And I, 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 was, I was actually um, disappointed in my own performance here because I started getting aggressive hmm. about three quarters of the way through. I literally told myself, Carter, calm down. Because <laughs> like, I got these people now, 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 bam, bam, bam. And I just slow down, man. And so I, I relaxed. I started pacing myself a little more, huh. and some of the comments I got were like, you're arrogant. <laughs> and that just, that just sunk my heart because, you know, yeah, I know I was struggling with that, and they pointed it out. I'm just like, oh, that's terrible. And so I, I'm going to try real hard next time to just chill, and I missed some opportunity. Now, I did do a little gospel-y thing at the end, but I missed an opportunity to read some Bible verses while I was doing this. And I'm, I'm kicking myself because had, had I planned better— and yet, even though I'm thinking this is a disaster, I've still got 43,000 views. Mm-hmm. And even though a lot of people are commenting negatively, a lot of people commented positively. Good. And so that was, that was my goal. Do you think that the pandemic response in their comments were especially positive? Like they, you know, the, the, the same people criticizing you were also praising them up and down? Oh, yeah. Or I was wondering is, is there like trolls to go around from different vantage points? Um, yeah, but see... Most of the people are just regular people. This is not trollish behavior. This is clannish behavior. And the number That's a very good way to describe it. And I, honestly, I think the US government has lost the information battle. I think most of the governments have, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, as far as the, the anti-vax debate, the US government has lost. There's going to be resistance to any future vaccines that are put on or any mandates. Now, in New York State, they might have been able to slap down, you know, no more religious exemptions, but that's New York. I don't think the rest of the country is going to go for it. Mm. And this whole pandemic thing, everyone's sick and tired of it. Mm. Everyone's like, I'm going outside. And I like the, you know, those people who threw the park ranger in the lake in Texas last week. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, it is yeah. terrible, but I'm laughing at the same time because like, phooey, they push him in the water. <laughs> so I know that here in Georgia with the lockdown situation uh, changing and now everything's open again, one of the things that was open before stores was the pu- public parks because if the gyms were closed, if the official organized sports were canceled, if the gyms at school were shut down because school is closed, they still wanted to help people get their basic exercise, recommending don't gather, keep your six feet away from each other, use your face masks, but by all means, use the state public parks. And guess what? More than a week and a half after those parks were supposed to be reopened, they still had the police line caution tape up yep. blocking the entrance of all those parks. Yep, they slow walked that thing. And if you happen to be in the neighborhood at that park in a public place and an officer of the law found you, there was a very good chance they were going to tell you you were not allowed there, leave, or they were going to not be very nice and give you a fee, uh, give you a fine. So then you would be the party explaining to the police officer that he was doing something against the law. And actually, if he's not going to remove the yellow tape, you will. And then he would say, but you don't don't want to be in that position as a citizen. No. And that's, you know, it's actually back in February when uh, Gary and I did our first uh, coronavirus video for uh, the creation talk. Uh, I, I, I made a joke, not really a joke, but I made a statement. I mean, can you imagine if the U.S. government tried to lock down a major American city? <laughs> As in, I could not imagine it in February. I mean, I was, I was thinking, you know, if they tried to lock down Atlanta, that shooting would start. That, okay, you know, maybe Boston, but never Atlanta, not Birmingham. And yet everything got shut down anyway. Incredible. Amazing. The American people are amazingly patient. Patient and surprisingly flexible yeah <laughs> i think that honestly i think most Western civilization was surprisingly flexible for a while <laughs> most americans have been really cool about this yeah even though it's been a disaster economically for a lot of people most people have been everybody chill we're just gonna get through this i'm worried that if we get another one no one's going to obey right and and i mean the information battle and see, see this this coronavirus this um plandemic documentary is part of the information battle that's being lost. And that's part of what we're trying to do here on Equinox. Equinox, sorry. I went through the old way of saying it. I'll forgive you. I'll just like dub over your voice in post. <laughs> Equinox. <laughs> but one of the things we're trying to do here is to stimulate intelligent debate and discussion and thought and dig because as you stretch your mind, you start learning how to analyze and double check facts And when you're really interested, but interested in such a way that you can think through an issue that helps you deal with all the misinformation that's being thrown at us. And it is shocking. I can't trust anything. Yep. I don't trust my government. I don't trust anything I hear on Facebook or YouTube. Nope. And I mean, I'm a scientist and I'm having issues with trust. Whoa, this is not good. I mean, this is a disaster for a civilization. I remember in the last 15 years... Most of my career has been in organizations where sources mattered a lot, attribution, uh, knowing the fact of the matter. And over all these years, the content creators have had a real hard time making sure that they got useful, accurate information. It is rough nowadays. The internet has not really made this any better. No. One of the rules of CMI for all the writers, in fact, speakers too, but for all the writers, 
you can't say something. You can't source something unless you have the source. You can't put a footnote, even type in the whole reference. You know, John Brown, 1888, you know, war against the states or something like that. You can't even type the reference in unless you actually have it because we don't want someone to get caught out trusting someone else's referencing when it wasn't true. And we don't want people playing fast and loose, you know, throwing references in there, even though they actually don't know if that's actually what it says. But on the internet, you can't do that. Things are just said. And so, okay, hey, audience, we're trying not to be grumpy here. Oh, I don't feel we're grumpy. We're just honestly saying things that matter of fact and uh, are very sobering. Okay, sober. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you for indulging us. Were you, are, are you ready to move on? I'm definitely ready to move on. Let's do, do something fun. Awesome. Part two of Dr. Robert Carter. Oh, that's right. So are you ready to explain yourself again? Like, we don't, I don't feel like we got a satisfying answer last time. Uh, you had explained marine biology, bioluminescent fish, um, your education, incredible background, very fun story. Like, I've seen some docudrama films. This would actually kind of be fun. Like, knowing how personable you are in real life, I could totally see somebody playing your life. And it wouldn't be Barney Fife, you know. Can I play my life? Nuts. Yeah, if you could, it'd be performed pretty good. Right. Um there could be some more special effects in your film than there are in real life. Maybe crank up the brightness on the bioluminescent fish. Oh, yeah. laser eyed fish. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give um, sound effects to the coral? You know, like something, you know, just a guttural. Or do they make music? Would there be like musical sounding coral? All the time I spent staring at corals under a microscope and watching their beautiful movements, I never thought of choreographing them. Mm hmm. But that would be cool. I did see once a, um, a slow motion video of two corals next to each other. And corals of different, different, two different corals, they might not like each other. Was this a slow motion or a time lapse where the movie yeah. sped up? Yeah, yeah, time lapse. And these two corals that were next to each other, and if they don't like each other, they'll send out what's called a sweeper tentacle. It's a really long tentacle with a lot of stingers on the end. And when you watch it, it looks like they're whacking each other. <laughs> smack 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 over hours you would never see you would never notice it and they start dying back because they're, they're literally killing each other and in the coral world there's this whole entire hierarchy of who can kill whom no way there's all this competition for space because space on a reef is you know precious it's almost like we're running at uh, the speed of like I don't know the Flash. It's like yeah. to the coral we're we're speedsters. Oh yeah, because they're you know they're they're on like a thousand year time scale. Yeah, so they're just. They're, it's not that to them they're slow, but it's that we're fast, and what they see is their sword fight uh, going on in real time. Yeah, and once you realize that. As you're swimming around the reef, you you can see that oh this coral is slowly overgrowing that other coral. Or there's a dead line between these two animals because they're stinging each other every night. Oh, it's war. Yeah. And so two different corals of the same species probably will fight, but maybe not. They fight. They can't even move, but they fight anyway. But if a coral, like a branch breaks off and roots on the ground, on, on the bottom, not on, the ground, on the dirt, but you know, underwater on the bottom and starts growing again, if it runs into the original colony, they just merge back into one colony. These are really weird animals. <laughs> that is incredible. <laughs> So you're not going to talk about marine biology anymore. No, I guess we, not. We have a lot of that. Yeah, let's, let's, do, let's do genetics. Oh, speaking of which, there's going to be links in the show notes. If you need to get the last episode, it'll be right there. And also, we're going to have a link to Rob's video about the pandemic in the show notes. Oh, good. Thank for you. your convenience. Thank you. 
So explain where you began to transition to genetics, human genetics, and what that was like. What were your impressions of that career change? Well, it was a really, really neat opportunity that I had. How many years did you already have behind you in marine biology? Um, eight or nine. Okay. And four or five of that was in a genetics lab. Mm-hmm. But what happened was I got done with my doctorate and moved back up to Atlanta. And I was going to work at the Georgia Aquarium. And they hadn't built it yet, or they're just building it then. But I had been writing the future director of the aquarium, who was in Hawaii at the time, every six months. And I said, I'm going to write you every six months while I stay on your radar, because when that thing's built, I'm moving to Atlanta, and I'm going to come work at the aquarium. And when I got to Atlanta, I looked at the traffic, and I said, I don't want to do that. (laughs) So I was working as a handyman with a friend of mine, and I found out about the Gene Project uh, that the Institute for Creation Research was running. Uh, Before that, they had run the RATE Project, Radioisotopes and Age of the Earth. And so to follow up that, they're going to do genetics. They call it the Gene Project. And I wrote them a letter, and I got invited to go out to California. They paid for my plane fare, paid for a week for me in a hotel, and I sat through a meeting, and I got hired. Awesome. I mean, and by the end of the first day, uh, Dr. John Sanford said, uh, Rob, you need a job job? What do you want me to do? And so I started writing computer programs and analyzing data, you know, S- similar to what I was already doing before. But my friend in Atlanta, two doors down the, down the road, old, old friend, he's actually the uh, head of, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. He works at Georgia Tech, let's say, self-trained computer whiz. And he says, you need to learn how to program. I said, yes, I do. So he taught me how to program in Perl, which today is a dinosaur. But back then, it was like the thing. I knew you knew a thing or two about coding, but I didn't realize you knew Perl. I hear other podcasters that are developers talk about Perl. I love Perl. Hmm. I, no, I've been, I still programming. I've, I've taken some C classes and I'm taking some Python classes, but I've never needed to use them because I can do everything already that I know how to do. And so I've been writing computer programs now since 2005 and analyzing data. And the first data set that I analyzed was human mitochondrial data. Now, listener, there's a little piece of DNA that you only get from your mother. It's called the mitochondrial DNA. It's about 16,000 letters long. It's actually 1,600, 569 letters long. Okay, it's about 16,000 letters long. It's really tiny. That's 1.6 KB. That's smaller than any photograph you'll ever take on your phone. That's how big the file is. And so I, at the time, I spent a long time and I downloaded about 1,400 of them from a government database. And I went through them and I got rid of all the bad ones. And most all the bad ones were in the FBI database. Why is that? That's, that's odd that you had mentioned that. It, well, it was shocking. The data that the federal government had collected was garbage. <laughs> it had all these errors in it. And because they did it early and did it fast and it wasn't, you know, peer reviewed necessarily. And I ended up rejecting all that data. And I had, in the end, I got 800 samples. And that is amazing. For back then, this is, you know, 2007, eight now. I had 800 something samples and I put them all together and I made a family tree of all the ladies in the world. And then we calculated where Eve was. Interesting. No, but we didn't just say put, Eve. We're, we're talking about the uh, woman number one. Woman number one. We didn't just put our finger on the tree. So that's where she is. No, we actually, we recreated her genes. So you recreate, you resurrected Eve <laughs> or you have her DNA. No, theoretically, we recreated it. Okay. We know what the f- sequence of the first woman was. We know what God created. Ah, oh, that's huge. Yeah, fun. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, there sure is. But, you know, it's not going to be an episode all about genes. Tell me a little bit more about what you were doing after that project. Well, that was my bridge into, you know, the creation world that I had not been officially working on until, you know, a couple of years before that. And pretty soon I learned about CMI, Creation Ministries. 
I was literally on the web one day and, you know, just looking up science stuff and creation stuff. Just Around fun. what year? Uh, this would be about 2007-ish. Okay. And I came across this group I'd never heard of before. But I recognized all the faces and the names. Turns out they had a new name and they were starting up a U.S. office in Atlanta. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I sent them an email. And, well, no, they didn't have an office in Atlanta. They had a P.O. box in Atlanta. <laughs> and the email went to Australia. <laughs> and two nights later at 9 o'clock at night, which is 8 o'clock in the morning for them, I got a call from Carl Wheeland. And he basically said, I like what you said. PhDs don't grow on trees. Let's talk. I ended up being the first person CMI hired from outside CMI for their U.S. office. Hmm. Uh, they brought over Larry from the South African office because his uh, visa had expired. So he came back to the States with his family. And CMI started in Larry's basement. <laughs> and half of his garage was our warehouse. Hmm. And then we hired a secretary, Mary Lee, who just retired this year. And we've expanded. Now we own this big building. We've got like 20 employees here. And we brought other people over from Australia. It's all, all these horrible accents that aren't. No, sorry. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel sometimes like we're on the deck of one of the Enterprise, you know, that has like a very multicultural atmosphere with more accents oh, yeah. than we have any business with. Yeah, but where's the person with the blue face? We don't have that one yet. <laughs> we need to find somebody. Can you wear this mask or this face paint for us? The, the, so when you began with CMI, were you working on research and public speaking, writing books? What did you do? What um, was the idea? I was still working for ICR part-time when I started working at CMI part-time. So I had a full-time job, theoretically. I was doing my research at ICR, but CMI, I was preparing to give creation talks to churches. And I worked my tail off without pay at first for a couple of months. I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And then they brought me to Australia for speaker training. And they had me stand up in front of all of these people with PhDs that I had known and read their material for years. It was the most intimidating audience I'd ever had. And they didn't look at me. So they were reviewing. They were writing notes the whole time. And I need reaction from my audience. I feed off my audience. So they were critiquing you or were they trying oh, yeah. to learn from you? Oh, oh they, yeah. <laughs> okay. They were going to, they were going to school you. Oh, <laughs> David Ketchpool, one of the most gentlest persons I've ever met. Lovely man. What a wonderful man. I've never heard him say anything bad about anybody. You know what his first words to me were after I was done? <laughs> what? He said, Rob, I'm quoting now, Rob, that's the worst creation talk I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Why? Because it was terrible. Okay, but were you not getting any training as of yet back in the U.S.? Not yet. Okay. And I, yeah, okay, I thought, it was your first. I thought I knew what I was doing because I'm a nerd. I like science. I like the Bible. I've been reading this creation stuff for 20 years. I was like, I got this. And I put together what I thought was a great talk. And between, you know, the 15 people in the room, they're like, you said that wrong. If you say that, you open yourself up to all these other, you, or you don't even know how to understand that argument. You put the slide up. You don't even know what the slide is for. What are you doing? And they schooled me. And it was one of the best things that ever happened. Because I tell you what, it's better to be critiqued harshly by your friends than to be destroyed by your enemies. Mm-hmm. And honestly, at CMI, if you're a speaker, you need a thick skin because we critique each other. Not meanly, but we do it to sharpen and sharpen and hone and tweak and get better. And we do. And I got better. And now I get to wear all sorts of different hats. And How did you uh, wrap up things with ICR? Were you doing them for a few more years to come? Um, yeah, one day um, uh, the boss comes up to me and says, Hey, Rob, uh, you need to go full time. I said, I don't want to go full time because you want benefits. 
Oh, and now we're talking. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was a couple years in and when I actually became an, an official uh, full-time member of the staff. And yet I still get to do research. Yeah. I'm one of the only ones who part of my deal is I get to study and I get to analyze data and I get to uh, produce new ideas. Most of the other speakers and staff members are reading science articles and writing articles about it and things like that. But I actually get to do, you know, scratch one-off research from, from, from the beginning. So how do you like to work these days? Do you like the, the presentations on the road on the weekends plus research on the weekdays? What does work-life balance look like for you? For me, I mean, I am, I am, if I was in school today, I'm certain they would diagnose me as being ADD and they put me on Ritalin. I, I have no doubt about it. It would ruin me. <laughs> but I have a perfect job because there's some days I'm sitting in an office and there's some days I'm walking at an airport. There's some days I'm in front of 500 people. And there's some days I'm in a corner just chilling and typing up an article. And that, that back and forth, constantly changing workflow is perfect for me. I would have a hard time. In fact, this, this whole coronavirus thing, I've been sitting in a chair in my living room for two months now. And you're still alive. I'm still alive. But there's, after a couple of weeks of that, yeah, I was yeah. like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. You need some rental and stat. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, I, I've got this, this dream job for me because I can write on any topic I want. So I get to write on physics and biology and marine biology and corals and Bible and genetics and genealogy and history and if you know, I'm just if I just scroll down the, the list of articles that I wrote, which is on my bio on creation.com, I've got them categorized into all these different categories because I'm a I like different things and I like doing different things. And one of my favorite things to do actually is to co-author articles with other people. I'm um I work faster with other people and my ideas gel quicker. And so, you know, just recently I did a very long article in the Shroud of Turin and a couple of articles on the genetic history of the Israelites according to the scriptures. And I've talked about um, dinosaurs and um, the history of Egypt. If you could pursue another scientific venture and explore it to the nth degree, just like, Rob, here's a blank check, pursue this. Wow. What would that project be? Probably genetics. Okay. Uh, Yeah. But where would you go further in genetics? Um, I would get DNA sequencing to the point where it's so accurate we can actually use it to measure mutation rate. Because the biggest, one of the biggest frustrations for me right now, all these million-dollar programs, millions of dollars programs, and the data quality isn't high enough. There is an error rate to DNA sequencing, and there's an error rate in humanity because of mutations. They're about the same. So if I look at your DNA versus my DNA, I don't know how long we've been separated because there's error in the data from the sequencing. I don't know what's an error and what's a mutation. Hugest frustration. So I just nerded out there. You asked me where I'd go. Actually, I would stay where I am, but drill down into that one specific area that we really want answered. Because then we can answer questions like, how long has humanity been around? How many mutations really are there per generation? How long would that take to accumulate? Why are these variants in Africa and these variants in Iceland? Those kind of questions we can't answer yet because we don't have the good, good enough data for it yet. But do you think that we're going to be able to get to that point? Do you think um, that we're going to have that technology? In the not-too-distant future? Actually, uh, I've, I've been really disappointed because now I realize that we don't have one human genome. 
our DNA mutates over our lifetimes and each cell is different than the cell next door. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that hadn't accounted for that. And some cells reproduce faster than others. So you can get entire clones like taking over as your cells reproduce. Your DNA can actually shift and change and mutations in your body can ebb and flow. So there is no human genome. There's variable DNA and ARG. And so we might not ever get back to Adam and Eve, but I want to know if we can. Hmm. But if I had to focus on one thing, I would go crazy. So I'm going to have to look at, you know, we, I just wrote a, uh, an article with Matthew Churhati on Jacob's breeding experiment. The sheep and goats that Jacob oh, and yeah. Laban were arguing about, that's a very interesting genetic puzzle. Yeah, because he's getting black spots and streaks. Yeah, and yeah. so we, we looked at the genetics of the animals and said, okay, we can now explain what happened in the story, which is fun. I don't think anyone's ever actually done it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I also love talking, about, of course, about technology in the cell. And um, if I wasn't you know, thinking about physics, in fact, you know what we're going to do on the next episode? Mm-hmm. I've decided we're going to take physics and coral and biology, marine biology, and, and the skeletons of corals and chemistry, too. And we're going to put it all together. And let's talk about the so-called banding and Paleozoic corals. Sounds kind of weird, but this is it's really amazing. <laughs> this idea, it brings together all these things like the, the moon slowing the earth down. And what would it have looked like if the earth is, you know, 300 million years ago in the middle of Paleozoic? Well, the calculation says day length would have been about 22 hours instead of 24 hours. Whoa, wait a minute. So some physics there. We're also going to talk about the biochemistry of the animal. <laughs> and if we can actually tell when those corals were alive what the length of day was. So yeah, you're making a very good point that you do like the the variety within the field. Yeah. So for a ministry like CMI, you're an educational uh, powerhouse, and the, you're collaborative. You're working with the guys with the articles. You are shaking things up with all these different topics. So what is the point of a organization like uh, CMI's? Why are you writing these articles? Why are you giving these presentations? What does it all mean? What does it, why does it matter? Why does, why does an organization do, go out of their way to do this? For a lot of people, having answers to basic questions in science is really important for, for what they believe. That's true you know, for lots of different people, whether you're not a Christian or not. But for Christians specifically, because I'm a Christian and I've got a heart for other Christians who are wrestling with ideas, specifically younger Christians like teenagers who are being bombarded with things that they can't answer. And one of the reasons they can't answer it because, well, they might be 15 and the person hitting them upside the head with some new information might be, you know, 60. And he's had a lot more years to think about these things and that this new person is just opening up their mind to some weird ideas. And so for me, I, I, mean, I, think, I like to think that I exist because there's one person out there who needs to hear a, defense of, a reasonable defense of the faith and I might be able to give it to him. Can I introduce you to something I've been working on for a number of years then? Yeah. It kind of relates to this subject. Yeah. So years ago, there was someone who uh, had a, uh, like words of wisdom to give young people. Okay. That uh, would say this to the young people that he ran into at church. You know, everything spoken must be true, but not everything true must be spoken. And he would kind of like get this. I have that problem. I tend to say everything. I can't stop not saying it. Okay. So the thing was, this was something that he learned while he was a younger adult. And it was a rule of thumb that he had learned had helped him so much 
that he stuck by it and it kind of changed his outlook on life and how he viewed philosophical decisions and how he related to even his immediate family. All right. Now, you would think that as a whole, with a, a virtuous proverb statement like that, everything spoken must be true, but not everything true must be spoken, that he, he began to view what people were saying to him through that lens. And you'd think that it would be good. Well, as it turned out, it kind of backfired because someone close to him kind of was lying to him. But he was so accustomed to this notion that everything spoken must be true, that he was filtering what someone was telling him with the assumption this must be true, because the truth is what must be spoken. So inadvertently, he made himself a little bit gullible. Hmm. So here's my point. Okay. I think that sometimes when the older generation has come up with certain scientific, uh, scientific ideas... They got this ideal and they think that this is what is true. We got this and we can teach this in school. Or like in the example of this person who has this notion of everything spoken must be true, but not everything true must be spoken. There's a hole in that virtue statement. There's a a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a way in which it isn't applicable to all situations. He's set himself up for a little failure. So the younger generation comes along and might witness his mistake and say, well, I'm not going to live by that. I'm going to change everything that I'm about. Yep. So I call this the plateau effect. Okay, explain. So it's the idea that somebody is trying to solve a problem for his generation. It is a problem he personally faces. He thinks that this is going to uh, correct something about philosophy or science or religion. And he, he taps it. He has a, a burst of insight. He's got it. This is the answer to what my people need to hear. So then he develops his whole school of thought around that principle. And then he preaches on it. He writes books about it. He does research on it. He discusses with others on podcasts and it becomes his mantra. It works. But the problem with the plateau effect is that that's where you're, you're roosting. You, You set on your laurels and you think your answer is the answer to far more problems than it actually solves. So you think that you've got it all made because you're looking at this one plateau on the side of a mountain and you're content to stay there and you just keep teaching people this one principle and think it answers a whole lot more than it actually answers. Meanwhile, the next generation, the younger generation is coming up behind you and realize, oh, this is a very interesting plateau, but they see its foibles and flaws. (laughs) And so then it's much easier for the next generation to come along and say, yeah, I'm not buying it because that doesn't answer some of the questions I have. And I'm looking at this other side of the mountain over there and I want to see what that's all about. You know where my brain jumped when you're, you're talking here? My, my earliest years in 1970s that I remember. We had stagflation. I wasn't young enough to remember the Vietnam War, but I remember the after effects of it anyway. Uh, the, the, the boat people that came and tried to flee that country after we left. Uh, we had um, the Red Scare, which morphed into the Cold War. We had um, peak oil and the oil embargo. We had all, you know, um, the, the coming ice age that everyone was worried about. But that brought in Ronald Reagan. So my high school years was not Jimmy Carter anymore, Gerald Ford. Before that, it was Ronald Reagan. It was go America. We can do this. Rah, rah, rah. But that morphed into Iran-Contra and ballooning budgets. And even though we had Star Wars and we're like, yeah, we're going to nuke the Russians, blah, 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 blah. It, you know, it was just a pipe dream. Economically, it was impossible. 
And then the Soviet Union fell apart and we get, you know, after, after Bush, we get Bill Clinton. And just the, the psyche of the country is flipping up and down and back and forth and left and right. And what you figure out one generation or decade has nothing to do with what's going to be like a couple years later. And so our yesterday self is planning for yesterday constantly. Meanwhile, the next generation is coming along and saying, well, what you're dealing with is not the problems I have. Yeah. And then they develop their own plateau. They set up base camp. They do their yeah. thing. They have their, create their platform. Here's their answer to all the problems. Yeah. So what's this generation, this, you know, the high school, elementary school generation going to be like when they live through this, this silly coronavirus problem? Oh, my How's that affecting them? I mean, I couldn't imagine, you know, that whole 1960s, early 70s thing. Those young people were rebelling against the thought of imminent death because it was the bomb scare and we're going to be nuked. And the hippies came out of that. So it was almost so, like they, they, their mind was already living in a future where it was post-apocalyptic. Yeah, we might, we might as well just feel good. Yeah, but if we just love each other, you know, all the all the world's problems will be solved. Mm. So what what's going to be the psyche of, of this current generation? I'm hoping they're going to be the the can do generation. Mm-hmm. We can fix the problems. We're not scared of anything, sort of thing. I hope so, but I don't know. So that's the plateau effect. It's the S idea, like you were saying. You've got the 60 year old who's got his influential ideas on the 15 year old coming up, and uh, how do we avoid that? That is a great place for scientists to work. And science can't rest on its laurels. Yeah. Science communicators. We can't rest on our laurels. No, we cannot. And that is what uh, pretty much happens to the philosophers, the thinkers, the pundits, the, the scientists that come along and say, I've got it all figured out based on a book published in the 19th century. Here you go, guys. And the science has moved on, but we're still stuck on that plateau that is over 100 years old that is holding us way back because there's so much more of the mountain to climb ahead and we have so much more to learn. So how do we communicate this to people who want to know stuff and want to be faithful Christians at the same time? That's my challenge. And that's what, that's I literally, that's my best part of my job is encouraging people that even if we don't have all the answers, we know where the answers lie. Here's the direction we need to go. We don't have to run away or, or drop our faith just because, you know, Richard Dawkins or, um, you know, so, someone with, a, you know, Sam Harris or I'm just trying to think of random names here. Mm-hmm. As someone who's got a really good personality and a blistering intellect and they can tie us in knots intellectually. Well, we don't have to follow that person necessarily. We can answer those things. And that's the coolest thing. I love being able to do that. And the fact that I'm interested in so many different subjects helps me a lot. So like one of my, my absolute favorite things to do all the writing and, and interacting with people and all the traveling is not even speaking in churches. It's when I'm done, very often we'll have an impromptu question and answer session and the audience can ask me anything they want. And that's my absolute favorite thing because it's random topics, random questions. I never know what's coming. And I get to show them that, you know, even if I'm not an expert and I don't exactly necessarily know the answer, I know where to go and I point them in a direction. But usually I know the answer because I've been doing this so long and it's just fun. I like I like getting challenged like that and getting stumped sometimes. Every once in a while, I was like, you know, I have no idea what that answer is. I haven't even heard that phrase before. That's cool. That's fine. Because next time, I heard that last time. I still don't know what it is. I still have more to learn. You know what I think that would be great? We already have a, a, a wonderful ministry or two or three that are helping people with these science topics. It feels like a real way to give this a boost was would we we need to be able to educate the teachers and the ministers and the preachers the pastors yes 
those that are routinely in the churches to address these issues. Yes. So something else that I wanted to touch upon is the we focus so much on the science and the creation aspects, but this is just one little piece of the pie for a Christian paradigm, uh, the Christian faith belief. It's not, it is the Bible, it is always the Bible, but creation is not what the entire Bible is about. So a lot of people would refer to it as a Christian worldview. And you had mentioned that you're not very fond of that term. I don't like the word worldview. Mm-hmm. It sounds like Christianese. It's a word Christians say. Like theology, apologetics. That those are good words. But okay, those are okay. Yeah, but the word... see, I, I personally am not a fan of those. Really? Yeah, like worldview to me feels a little bit more approachable. But yeah, but no one uses that word. No, no one does. And you have a worldview. That's the way you interpret everything. You what? There was a movie that came out a couple of years ago when I was reviewing movies called Vantage Point. Okay. And it's an action film where there is an a, a, assassination attempt, and then it plays through the assassination attempt scene from one person's vantage point. And then at the end of that scene unfolding, it zooms in on somebody else who was there, and then we rewind the clock and see the whole scene over again from this other person's vantage okay, point. Cool. Vantage point is a term, kind of like worldview. It, it kind of means something, but it also doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, but vantage point is you know, obvious. Maybe not to everyone. It's a phrase I would use. I wouldn't have any problem mm-hmm. with it. But okay. the word worldview, is just, it's not my vocabulary. It's weird because I work for a worldview ministry. <laughs> and we have lots of articles on it. And that word pops up in a lot of people's writings, but never in mine. So putting the word worldview aside, mm-hmm. we all do approach the world in different ways. And the way the Christian is supposed to think, there's a specific mindset we're supposed to have. And it's hard to achieve because we're sinful. We get angry. We get lazy. We, we can be really ignorant of a lot of topics sometimes. And honestly, my age right now, I should know a lot more about the Bible than I do. There's certain parts of the Bible I have no clue. You ask me about like Revelation or end times theology, I'll tell you what I am, and but I haven't studied it in decades. At least you're honest. <laughs> Not everybody can be so homo <laughs> can admit that they don't know something. <laughs> I've taken I've taken classes through church, seminary classes, uh, New Testament, Old Testament classes, four of them. And when we got the Psalms, I almost died. <laughs> I had no idea there were so many details in the Psalms, so many really cool things. But I'm like, uh, I I just don't understand this. And I was that way in high school too with English classes. They'd be talking about some analyzing some poem. I'm like, what are you talking? It just it was like total gibberish. So there are places in the Bible I don't know, but I try real hard to take a general biblical approach to most areas of life. And that's what I'm trying to encourage Christians to do while I'm on a speaking circuit in all my writings. We have this thing called the Bible. Let's believe it and let's apply it. Awesome. Well, you think that's about uh do you want to wrap up there? I, I feel like we're hanging. So there's the life of Rob. Mm-hmm. I'm glad. Spent, this is a good bookend. All all this time talking about me, which was actually very uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about <laughs> me. I like to talk to th- about things that I like to talk about, but not me personally necessarily. So, audience, thank you for bearing with us. Well, I thought this is what podcasts were all about. Was you know yeah. <laughs> just talking about yourself, right? And, and I really enjoy. I'm kidding. Well, I do I'm though kidding. enjoy listening to the stories behind the people that I listen to. Yeah. There's a couple of podcasters, I know nothing about them, and I love their shows, but you know, who is this person? That would drive me nuts. Yeah. Like, I, my favorite shows are where I really feel like I got to know something about the hosts. Yeah. And so, you know, when we're setting up 
equinox and we're talking about what we're going to do mm-hmm. this is part of the feel we want to do we wanted to make it personal mm-hmm. you know geeky nerdy fun whimsical and sometimes personal yeah you just lay it bare so there you go so thank you so much for joining us on this episode. If you want to dig deeper into this episode's topics, learn anything else about Rob or the things that he has written, you can find links to stuff that we have discussed in the show notes on our website. Hop over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 12. And if it's more handy for you, the show notes are also with this episode in your podcast player. If you want us to discuss a science topic that you have in mind, please tweet to at podcast equinox and we'll get your idea in the queue. Or if you want to reach out to Rob and uh, see his science videos, go to Biblical Genetics on Facebook and YouTube, where you can watch his latest and join his discussions. If you want to catch up with me, I'm JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to Equinox. So something I was going to ask you, Rob, that we never got around on the show. Oh, we're not done yet. Well, we're done, technically. But okay. um, earlier today, I asked you in a text message, did you know anything about supermoons? Oh, yeah. Okay, because, okay, it was, um, my wife and I had been, like, noticing some odd behavior. Last night, I we went to bed uh, before midnight, and I felt like I went to sleep pretty fast. And it was comfortable. Like, I had a hot tea. I was relaxed. I felt like I was both in a deep sleep and not asleep at all. And then after like laying there completely motionless for a long time, I like, and I wake up and I just kind of like know that my wife is still awake. And I, t- I reach over and I touch the, the phone and it's been an hour. It's almost one o'clock in the morning. And I said, are you still awake? And she goes, yes, just like that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what's going on? And she says, I don't know. She gets up. She's like, I'm not tired at all. And she goes to the restroom and she looks out the, uh, the bathroom. She goes to the bathroom. She looks out the window. She goes, oh, it's a full moon outside. It's really bright. You are turning to lunatics. <laughs> that is that loon That's in right. Luna. That's where and, it comes from. Moonlight. You don't go get moonlight. You'll turn into a lunatic. So what is this? So then she looks it up and she says, it's actually like the height of the last supermoon of the year. Yeah. What is a supermoon? Well, it's actually... Not really that big a deal. Oh, okay. Um, and I get very frustrated with today all the, oh, it's the this kind of a supermoon and there's a blood moon, something harvest, blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, come on, man. You know, weird stellar, strange and rare stellar occurrences happen all the time. Oh, it's the alignment of the planets. No, it's the alignment of this planet and that planet. No, it's the alignment of this planet and the moon. Oh, this planet and that constellation. No, it's... <laughs> and so you can always, you know, trump up something weird like that and lately supermoons have become very popular topic hmm. it's just weird what what it is is the moon's orbit is not circular not perfectly circular it's a little bit elliptical so there's sometimes the moon is closer and sometimes it's farther away hmm. happens once a month yeah well that is not timed exactly to the month so sometimes a full moon happens when 
the moon is furthest away. Sometimes it happens on the sides, and sometimes it happens when it's as close as it can be. It's a, a thing called perigree. That just means the moon is as close as it's going to get. Hmm. And when a full moon happens at perigree, we call it a supermoon. <laughs> it's been happening for thousands of years. Um, it's, it's cool. I mean, the moon is theoretically bigger. You can't tell with your eyeball. So is it true that the moon can actually mess with like your circadian rhythm or your internal clock or mess with your sleep pattern or any of that? But you know what? We were created in a world with no street lights. Yeah, yeah. We were made to have a lunar cycle. Hmm. We were built, pre-programmed to a world where it would get really, really dark some, some nights and almost bright enough to read other nights. Interesting. I had a, a, a really awesome trip. It was a month-long trip to the Bahamas, and we were on a remote island. And to get to the, my, the place where my bed was, I had to ride a bike about a mile down a dirt gravelly sort of road. And I'd have a light. And I'd just been riding back and forth and back and forth that month, but I didn't realize the moon had been out. And the night where it was kind of late and I had to go to my place, the moon had set. Man, wow. I couldn't see. Man. The road, I mean, it was pitch black. Yeah, yeah. Starlight was enough where I could walk, but I couldn't ride my bike. But when the moon was out, I could ride my bike fine. I could avoid Easy. every pothole, every rock. It was no problem at all. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, Luna's, Luna is important to humanity. <laughs> and we are in tune to it, but we kind of forget the moon's out there. Now... Well, we should talk about the moon next time then. Oh, because, I mean, yes. this is equinox. We talked about this, planet Earth this for is Earth true. Day. This is true. And I already kind of earlier on gave a, a little uh, spoiler for, for the subject I would like to talk about which is about the moon and the way the moon slows the earth down. Yeah. And what happens to biology. Okay, that's a perfect segue. Cool. All right. Now, I don't know what was happening. I don't think the moon's gravity affects us like that. Light outside might affect us, but, you know, we have so much lights in our house now. I think we have pretty much decoupled ourselves from the lunar signal, whatever it might have been. 